with H.265 HEVC in 2013, we were now able to do up to 300 to 1 to up to 500 to 1 compression on, uh, let's say, a 4K video. And with VVC, we have truly entered a new realm where we can do up to 1,000 to 1 compression, which is three full orders of magnitude reduction of the original size. If the original size is, say, 10 gigabits, we can bring that down to 10 megabits. Uh, and that's unbelievable. Uh, and so video compression truly is a remarkable technology. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a marvel to look at. The Video Insiders is the show that makes sense of all that is happening in the world of online video. As seen through the eyes of a second-generation Kodak nerd and a marketing guy who knows what iframes and macro blocks are. And here are your hosts, Mark Donegan and Dror Gill. Today we're going to talk with one of the key figures in the development of uh, video codecs and a true video insider, Pankaj Topiwala. Uh, hello, Pankaj, and welcome to the Video Insiders podcast. Gentlemen, uh, hello, and uh, thank you very much for this uh, invite. Uh, looks like it's going to be a lot of fun. It is. Thank you for joining, Pankaj. Yeah, it sure will be a lot of fun. Uh, so can you start by telling us a little bit about your experience in codec development? Sure. Um, so I should say that uh, unlike a number of the other people that you have interviewed or may interview, uh, my background is fair a bit different. Uh, I really came into this field uh, really by a back door uh, and almost by chance. Uh, my degree, PhD degree, is actually in mathematical physics uh, from 1985, uh, and I actually have no engineering, computer science, or even management experience. So naturally, I run a small research company working in video compression and analytics. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> But that's just the way things go in the modern world. Um, uh, but uh, that uh, the effect for me was, uh, and the entry point, was that even though I was working in very, very abstract uh, mathematics, um, uh, I decided to leave. I worked in academia for a few years, and then I decided to join industry. Um, and um, uh, at that point, they were putting me into applied mathematical research. And the topic... At that time, that was really hot in applied mathematics was the topic of wavelets. And mm. um, I ended up uh, writing a, an edited book uh, called Wavelet Image and Video Compression in 1998, uh, which was a lot of fun, along with quite a few other co-authors co on that um, uh, uh, book. And uh, But wavelets had its biggest, uh, biggest contribution in the compression of image and video. And so that led me finally to enter into, uh, and I noticed that video compression was a far larger field than image compression. I mean, by many orders, of, by orders of magnitude. Uh, it is probably a hundred times bigger in terms of market size than, than image compression. Uh, mm -hmm. And as a result, I said, okay, if the sexiest application of this newfangled mathematics could be in video compression, uh, I entered that field roughly with the, um, uh, the book uh, uh, that I mentioned in 1998. So one thing that I noticed, uh, Pankaj, that's really interesting is um, your, your initial writing and you know, research was around wavelet um, uh, compression, and yet 
Um, you have been very active in ISO, MPEG, all block-based codecs. <laughs> so, so tell us about that. Okay, well, uh, obviously, um, you know, uh, it, when you make the transition from working on wavelets, and uh, our initial starting point was in doing wavelet-based video compression, um, uh, when I start, first founded my company, Fast Video, in uh, 1998, uh, 1999 period, uh, we were working on uh, wavelet-based video compression, and we we pushed that about as much as we could. Uh, and at that, at one point, we had what we felt was the world's best uh, video compression um, uh, using wavelets, in fact, but best overall. Uh, mm -hmm. And it had the feature that uh, you know one thing. That we should we should tell your our reader um, uh, listeners is that uh, the the value of wavelets in particular in image coding is that not only can you do state of the art image coding but you can make the bitstream uh, what is called embedded meaning mm. you can chop it off at anywhere you like and it's still a decodable stream and in fact. Uh, it is the best quality you can get for that bitrate, uh, and uh, that is a powerful, powerful thing you can do uh, in image coding. Um, now, in video, there is actually no way to do that. Um, uh, video is just so much more complicated, but we did the best we could to make it not embedded, but at least scalable. Uh, and uh, we, we built a scalable wavelet-based video codec, which at that time was beating uh, at the current implementations of MPEG-4. So we were very excited that we could launch a company based on a proprietary codec uh, that was based on uh, this newfangled mathematics called wavelets uh, and um, uh, lead us to uh, a state-of-the-art codec. The facts of the, on the ground, though, is that just within the first couple of years of uh, running our company, we found that, uh, in fact, the block-based transform codecs uh, that everybody else was using, including the implementers of MPEG-4 and then later AVC, uh, those quickly surpassed anything we could build with, uh, with wavelets in terms of both quality and stability. Uh, the wavelet-based codecs uh, were not as powerful or as stable. And I can say quite a bit more about why that's true, uh, if you want. So when you talk about stability, what exactly are you referring to in, in a video codec? Right. So let's, um, uh, let's take our listeners back a bit to compare image coding and video coding. Image coding is basically you're given a set of pixels in a rectangular array, and we normally divide that into blocks of sub-blocks of that image, uh, and then do transforms and then quantization and then entropy coding. That's how right. we typically do image coding. Uh, with the wavelet transform, we have a global transform. It's, uh, it's ideally done on the entire image. And then you could do it multiple times, what are called multiple scales of the wavelet transform. So you mm -hmm. could take various sub-blocks sub that you create by doing the wavelet transform, the low pass, high pass, and uh, do that again to the low, low pass uh, for multiple scales, typically about four or five scales that are used in popular image codecs um, uh, that use wavelets. But now in video, the novelty is that you don't have one frame. You have many, many frames, hundreds or thousands uh, or more. Um, and you have motion. Uh, 
Mm. Now, motion is something where you have pieces of the image that float around from one frame to another, and they float randomly. Uh, that is, it's not as if all the motion is in one direction. Uh, some things move one way, some things move other way, some things actually change orientations, um, and uh, they really move, of course, in three-dimensional space, not in our two-dimensional space that we capture. That complicates uh, video compression enormously over image compression, and it particularly complicates all the wavelet methods to do um, uh, video compression. Uh, so wavelet methods that try to deal with motion were not very successful. The best we tried to do was using motion compensated video uh, you know, transforms. So doing wavelet transforms in the time domain as well as the spatial domain along the paths of motion vectors. But uh, that was not uh, very successful. And um, uh, what I mean by stability is that as soon as you increase the motion, the codec breaks. Whereas in video coding, uh, using block-based transforms and block-based motion uh, uh, estimation and compensation, uh, mm -hmm. it doesn't break. It just um, uh, uh, degrades much more gracefully. Wavelet-based uh, codecs do not great, uh, degrade uh, gracefully in that regard. And so we, of course, uh, as a company, uh, we decided, well, if those are the facts on the ground. Uh, we're going to go with whichever way video coding is going and drop uh, our initially entry point, entry point, namely wavelets, and go with the DCT. Um, now, um, one important thing we found was that even in the DCT, ideas we learned in wavelets could be applied right to the DCT. And I don't know if you're familiar with this part of the story, but a wavelet transform can be decomposed using uh, bit shifts and adds only using something called the lifting transform. At least uh, important wave the transforms can. Now, it turns out that the DCT can also be decomposed uh, using lifting transforms, using only bit shifts and adds. And that is something that uh, my company developed uh, way back Back in 1998, actually, um, uh, and uh, we showed that not only for DCT, but a large class of transforms called lab transforms, which included the block transforms, but in particular included more powerful transforms. Uh, the importance of that in the story of video coding is that up until H.264, all the video codecs, so H.261, uh, MPEG-1, MPEG-2, uh, all these video codecs uh, used a, uh, a floating point implementation of the discrete cosine transform. And uh, without requiring anybody to implement, um, you know, a, a full floating point uh, transform to a very large number of uh, decimal places, what they required then was a minimum uh, accuracy to the DCT. And that became something that all codecs had to do, that if you had an implementation of the DCT, it had to be accurate to the true floating point DCT up to a certain um, uh, decimal point uh, in, in the transform accuracy. Um, with the advent of H.264, with H.264, we decided right away that we were not going to do a floating point transform. We were going to do an integer transform. Now, that was the, that decision was made even before I joined, my company joined the development of H.264 uh, AVC. But they were using 32-point uh, transforms. 
we found that we could introduce uh, 16 point transforms, half the half the complexity, and half the complexity only in the linear dimension. When you when you think of it as uh, spatial dimensions, so two spatial dimensions, it's uh, it's actually grows more. And so the reduction in complexity is not a factor of two, but at least a factor of four, and much more than that. In fact, it's a little closer to exponential. Uh, the reality is that we were able to bring the H.264 codec. So in fact, the transform was the most complicated part of the entire codec. So if you had a 32-point transform, the entire codec was a 32-point uh, technology. Uh, and it needed 32 points, 32 bits at every sample to process in hardware or software. By changing the transform to 16 bits, we were able to bring the entire codec to a 16-bit implementation, which dramatically improved um, the hardware implement implementability of this trans of this um, entire codec without at all affecting the quality. Uh, so that was a an important um, uh, development uh, that happened with AVC, and since then we've been working with only integer uh, transforms. This technical history is uh, r really amazing to hear. I I didn't actually uh, know that, Jor. You 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 probably. Knew, knew that, but I didn't. Yeah, I mean, I knew it's... about the transform and shifting from fixed point, uh, from a floating point to integer transform. Uh, but, uh, you know, and, uh, I, I didn't know. Uh, That's an incredible contribution, contribution Pankaj. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, we've, uh, uh, we like to say that we've saved the world billions of dollars in hardware implementations. Uh, and we've taken a small, uh, a small um, you know, uh, donation as a, as a result of that to, to survive as a small company. Yeah, that's great. And then from AVC, you moved on and you continued your involvement in, in the other standards. The, uh, right, the standards right. that's followed. In fact, um, in, we've been involved in standardization efforts now for almost 20 years. My first meeting was, uh, I recall, in May of 2000. I went to a, an MPEG meeting in Geneva. And then shortly after that, uh, in July, I went to an ITU VKEG meeting. VKEG is the video coding experts group uh, of the ITU. And MPEG is uh, the moving picture experts group of ISO. Um, these two organizations were separately pursuing their own codex at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, ISO MPEG was working on MPEG-4. Uh, and ITU VKEG was working on H.263 and 263 mm -hmm. and 263++. And then finally, they started a project called 263L uh, for long term. Um, and uh, eventually, it became clear to these two organizations that look at silly to work on, on separate codecs. Um, they had worked once before uh, in MPEG-2 to develop a joint standard, and they decided uh, to, to form a joint team uh, at that time called the Joint Video Team, uh, JVT, to develop the H.264 slash AVC video codec, which was finally done in 2003. Uh, we participate, uh, participated, um, you know, uh, fully in that, making many contributions, uh, of course, in the transform, but also in motion estimation and uh, other aspects. So, for example, it might not be known that we also contributed um, the fast motion estimation that's now widely used uh, in probably uh, nearly all implementations of 264. But uh, in 265, uh, HEVC uh, as well, and we participated in VVC. Uh, but one of the important things uh, that we can discuss is these uh, technologies 
although they all have the same overall structure, they have become much more complicated uh, in terms of the processing that they do. Mm -hmm. And uh, we can discuss that to some extent if you want. Uh, the compression factors just uh, keep increasing from generation to generation. And, you know, we're wondering what's the limit of that? That's, of course, a, a very good question. And let me try to answer some of that. And in fact, um, that discussion, I don't think came up in uh, the discussion you had with Gary Sullivan, which certainly could have, uh, but I don't recall it in that conversation. So let me try to give for your listeners uh, who did not catch that or are not familiar with it, a little bit of the story. The first um, international standard was the ITU H.261 standard dating roughly to 1988. And it was designed to do only about 15 to one to 20 to one compression. And it was used mainly for video conferencing. And at that time, uh, you'd be surprised uh, from our point of view today, the size of the video being used was actually incredibly tiny, about QCIF or 176 by 144 pixels. Yeah. Um, video of that quality, that was the best we could conceive. And we thought we were doing great. Uh, and doing 20 to 1 compression, wow. Uh, recall, by the way, that um, if you try to do lossless compression of any natural signal, whether it's speech or audio or images or video, um, you can't do better than about two to one or at most about two and a half to one. You cannot do, typically you cannot even do three to one and you definitely cannot do 10 to one. So a video codec that could do 20 to one compression was 10 times better than what you could do lossy, uh, lossless, I'm sorry. So this is definitely lossy, but lossy with still good quality that you can use it. Uh, and so we thought we were really good. Uh, when MPEG-1 came along in, in roughly 1992, uh, we were aiming for 25 to 1 compression, and the application was the video compact disc, the VCD. With H.262 or MPEG-2, roughly 1994, we were looking to do about 35 to 1 compression, 30 to 35, and the main application was then DVD or also broadcast television. At that point, broadcast television was ready to use, um, at least in some, some segments, uh, uh, try um, uh, digital broadcasting. In the United States, that took a while, uh, but uh, in any case, it could be used for broadcast television. And then from uh, that point, A.264 ABC in 2003, we jumped right away to more than 100 to one compression. Uh, this technology, at least on large format video, can be used to shrink the origi original size of a video by more than two orders of magnitude, which was absolutely stunning. You know, uh, no other natural signal, not speech, not broadband audio, not images could be compressed that much and still give you high quality uh, subjective quality. Uh, but video can because it's, uh, it is so uh, redundant. Um, and uh, because we don't understand fully yet how to um, uh, appreciate video subjectively, we've been trying things um, you know, ad hoc. So the entire development of video coding has been really by ad hoc methods uh, to see what quality we can get. Uh, and by quality, we've been using two, uh, two metrics. 
One is simply a mean square error-based metric called peak signal-to-noise ratio, uh, or PSNR, and that has been the industry standard for the last 35 years. Uh, but the other met method is simply to have people look at the video, what we call subjective rating of the video. Um, now, it's hard to get um, uh, a subjective rating uh, that's reliable. You have to do a lot of standardization, uh, get a lot of different people, and take mean opinion scores and things like that. That's expensive, whereas PSNR is something you can calculate on a computer. And so people have mostly, in the development of video coding for 35 years, relied on one objective quality metric called uh, PSNR. Uh, and uh, it is good, but not great. And it's been known right from the beginning that it was not perfect, not perfectly correlated to video quality. And yet, we didn't have anything better. Anyway, to finish the story of the video codex, uh, with H.265 HEVC in 2013, we were now able to do up to 300 to 1 to up to 500 to 1 compression on, uh, let's say, a 4K video. And with VVC, we have truly entered a new realm where we can do up to 1,000 to 1 compression, which is three full orders of magnitude reduction of the original size. If the original size is, say, 10 gigabits, we can bring that down to 10 megabits. Uh, and that's unbelievable. Uh, and so video compression truly is a remarkable technology. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a marvel to look at. Uh, of course, it does not, it's not magic. It comes with an awful lot of processing, and an awful lot yeah. of smarts have gone into it. <laughs> That's right. You know, um, Pankaj, that that is an amazing overview, and to hear that that VVC is going to be a thousand to one, um, uh, you know, compression benefit. Uh, wow, <laughs> that's that's incredible. We should of course um, we should of course uh, te uh, temper that uh, with uh, you know what people will use um, in applications. Correct. Um, Correct. Uh, they may not use the full power of uh, VVC and may not crank it to that level. Sure, but, sure. But uh, I can certainly tell you that I, that uh, we and many other companies have created Bitstreams with 1,000 to 1 or more compression and seen video quality that we thought was usable. One of the topics that uh, has come to light recently and been talked about quite a bit, and it was initially raised by uh, Dave Ronka, who used to lead uh, encoding at Netflix and is now uh, for like 10 years, in fact, um, yeah, I think he really built that department, the encoding team there, and uh, is now at Facebook. And he wrote a LinkedIn article um, post that was really fascinating. And what he was pointing out in this post was, was that with compression efficiency and as each uh, generation of Kodak is getting more efficient, as you just you know explained and gave us an overview, um, there, there's a there's a problem that's coming with that in that each generation of Kodak is also getting even more complex and um, you know, in some settings, and and I suppose um, you know Netflix is maybe an example where um, you know it's probably not accurate to say they have unlimited compute, but their application is obviously very different in terms of how they can operate their their encoding function compared to someone who's doing live live streaming, for example, or live broadcast. Maybe you can share with us as well, um, you know, through this generation, uh, generational growth of these codecs, how has the how has the compute 
requirements also grown? And has it grown in sort of a linear way along with the compression efficiency? Or are you seeing, you know, some issues with, um, you know, yes, we can get a thousand to one, but our compute efficiency is getting to the point where, you know, it could, we could be hitting a wall. You asked a good question. Has the complexity only scaled linearly with the compression ratio? And the answer is no, not at all. The complexity has outpaced the compression ratio. Even though the compression ratio is, is uh, tremendous, the complexity is much, much higher uh, and has always been at every step. Uh, first of all, uh, there's a big difference in um, uh, doing the research, the research phase uh, in development of the of of a technology like VVC, uh, where we were using a, um, a standardized reference model that the committee develops along the way, which is not at all optimized, uh, but that's what we all use uh, because we share a common code base and make any new proposals based on modifying that code base. Now, that code base is always, along the entire development chain, has always been very, very slow. And uh, true implementations are anywhere from 100 to 500 times more efficient uh, in complexity than the reference software. So right away, you can have the reference software for, say, VBC, and somebody developing a, a, an implementation that's a real product, it can be at least 100 times more efficient than what the reference software, maybe even more. Uh, so there's a big difference you know, when we're developing a technology, it is very hard to predict what the implementers will actually come up with uh, later. Of course, the only way they can do that is that companies actually invest the time and energy right away as they're developing the standard to build prototype uh, both software and hardware and have a good idea that when they finish this, you know, what is it going to really cost? So just to give you uh, an idea between H.264 and 265, H.264 only had two transforms of size 4x4 and 8x8. And these were integer transforms, which were only bit shifts and adds. Took no multiplies and no divides. Uh, the division, in fact, got incorporated into the quantizer. And as a result, it was very, very fast. Moreover, if you had to do make um, decisions such as inter versus intra, uh, mode. The intra modes, uh, there were only about eight or 10 intra modes in H.264. Um, uh, By contrast, in H.265, we have not two transforms, eight, four by four and eight by eight, but uh, in fact, sizes of four, eight, 16, and 32. So we have much larger size transforms. And right. instead of uh, eight or 10 uh, intra modes, we jumped up to 35 intra modes. Um, and uh, then with uh, VBC, we jumped up to 67 uh, intra modes. Uh, it, we just, it just became so much more complex. Uh, the compression ratio uh, between HEVC and VBC is not quite two to one, but let's say you know 40% better. Uh, but the uh, uh, the complexity is not 40% more uh, on the ground, and nobody has yet, to my knowledge, built a um, a, uh, a fully compliant and powerful either software or hardware uh, uh, video codec for VVC yet, uh, because it's not even finished yet. It's going to be finished in July 2020. Um, uh, when, it, when, when the dust finally settles, maybe four or five years from now, 
it will be it will prove to be at least three or four times more complex than HEVC at the encoder. The decoder, not that much. Uh, the decoder, luckily, we're able to build decoders that are much more linear than the encoder. So I guess I should qualify this discussion saying the complexity growth has all mostly been in the encoder. The decoder has been uh, much more reasonable. Remember, we are always relying on this principle of ever-increasing compute uh, capability, you know, a factor of two every 18 months. Uh, we've long heard about all of this, you know, and uh, it is true. Moore's law. Moore's law. If we did not have that, none of this could have happened. None of this high-complexity codex would ever have been developed because nobody would ever be able to implement them. But because of Moore's law, uh, we can confidently say that even if we put out this very highly complex VVC standard, someday and in not in the not too distant future, people will be able to implement this in hardware. Now, you also asked a very good question earlier. Is there a limit to how much we can compress? And also one can ask relatively in this issue, is there a limit to uh, Moore's law? And uh, we've heard a lot about that, that maybe finally after decades of the success of Moore's law and actually being realized, maybe we are now finally coming to quantum mechanical limits to uh, you know uh, how much we can miniaturize in electronics before we actually have to go to quantum computing, which is a totally different um, you know uh, approach to doing computing uh, uh, because trying to go smaller um, uh, die size will make it uh, unstable quantum mechanically. Um, now there it appears that we may be hitting a wall uh, eventually. We haven't hit it yet. But uh, we may be close to a, a physical limit in, uh, in die size. And uh, in the observations that uh, I've been making, at least, it seems possible to me that we are also reaching a limit to how much we can compress video, even without a complexity limit, how much we can compress video uh, and still obtain reasonable uh, or rather high quality. Um, but we don't know the answer to that. And in fact, there are many, um, many aspects of this that we simply don't know. For example, the only real arbiter of video quality is subjective testing. Um, nobody has come up with an objective video quality metric that we can rely on. PSNR is not it. Uh, when, when push comes to shove, nobody in this industry actually relies on PSNR. They actually do subjective testing. Well, so in that scenario, we don't know what the limits uh, of uh, visual quality uh, because we don't understand human vision. You know, we try, but human vision is so complicated. Nobody can understand the impact of that on video quality uh, to any very significant extent. Now, uh, in fact, the first baby steps to try to understand, not explicitly, but implicitly, capture subjective human video quality assessment into a neural model, those steps are just now being taken uh, in the last couple of years. In fact, we, we've been involved, my company has been involved in, in getting into that uh, because I think that's a very exciting area. I tend to agree that uh, uh, modeling human perception with a neural network seems more natural than you know just regular formulas and, and algorithms, which are, uh, which are linear. Um, now, I, I wanted to ask you about this process of, of creating um, the codex. Um, it's, it's very important to have standards. So you encode a video 
once and then you can play it anywhere and anytime and on any device. And for this, the encoder and decoder need to agree on exactly the format of the video. Um, and traditionally, um, you know, as you pointed out, with all the history of, of development, um, video codecs have been uh, developed by standardization bodies, MPEG and ITU uh, first separately, and then they joined forces to develop uh, the newest uh, video standards. But recently, we're seeing another approach uh, to develop uh, codecs, which is by open sourcing them. Uh, Google started with an open source codec called VP9, uh, which they first developed uh, internally, then they open sourced it, and um, and they use it uh, widely um, across their services, especially in, in, in YouTube. And then they joined forces with um, the, I think the largest companies in the world, not just in video, but in general, you know, those large internet giants such as uh, Amazon and Facebook and, uh, and Netflix and even Microsoft, Apple, Intel have joined together with the Alliance of Open Media uh, to jointly create uh, another open source uh, codec called uh, AV1. And this is a completely parallel process uh, to the MPEG codec uh, development process. And uh, the question is, do you think that this was kind of a um, one-time effort to to uh, uh, to try and find uh, or, or develop a royalty-free codec, or is this something that will uh, continue? And how do you think the adoption of the open source codecs versus the committee-defined uh, codecs um, how would that adoption uh, play out in the market? Uh, that's, of course, a, a large uh, topic on its own. And I should mention that uh, there have been a number of discussions about that topic, uh, in particular uh, at the SBIE conference uh, last summer in uh, San Diego. We had a panel discussion of experts in video compression to discuss exactly that. And one of the things we should provide to your listeners is a link uh, to uh, that um, uh, captured uh, video of the panel discussion where that topic is discussed uh, to some significant extent. Um, and uh, it's on YouTube, so we can provide a link uh, to that. My answer, and of course, uh, none of us knows the, knows the future, right? But uh, we're going to take our best guesses. Um, I believe that this trend uh, will continue and is a new uh, factor in um, the landscape of video compression development. But we should also uh, point out that the domain of, uh, uh, of preponderance use preponderant use of these codecs is going to be different than in our traditional codecs. Our traditional codecs, uh, such as X.264 and 265, were initially developed for primarily for the broadcast market or for DVD and Blu-ray. Um, uh, whereas these new codecs from AV, uh, AOM are primarily being developed for the streaming media industry, uh, so the likes of Netflix and Amazon and uh, for um, uh, YouTube, uh, where they put up uh, billions of uh, user-generated videos. Um, so for the streaming application, the decoder is almost always a software decoder. That means they can update that decoder anytime they do a software update. Uh, so they're not limited by a hardware development cycle. Of course, hardware companies are also building uh, AB1, uh, and the point of that would be to try to put it into um, uh, 
handheld devices like um, uh, laptops, tablets, and um, uh, especially smartphones. Um, but uh, to try to get AV1 uh, not only as a decoder, but also as an encoder in a smartphone is going to be quite complicated. Um, and the first few codecs that come out in hardware will be of much lower quality, for example, comparable to AVC, uh, and not even the quality of HEVC when they first start out. So uh, that's hardware implementations of AV1 that work in real time are not going to be, uh, it's going to take a while for them to catch up to the quality that AV1 can offer. But for streaming, um, uh, we, we can decode these streams uh, reasonably well in software or in firmware. And uh, the net result is that, or in GPU, for example, and the net result is that um, uh, these companies can already start streaming. So, in fact, um, uh, Google is already streaming some test streams of AV1 now uh, in its cloud-based um, you know, YouTube application. Uh, and um, uh, companies like Cisco are testing it already even for uh, for their WebEx um, uh, video communication uh, you know platform, uh, although the quality will not be then anything like the full capability of AV1, it'll be at a much reduced level. But uh, it'll be uh, this open uh, source uh, and uh, not notionally you know royalty free uh, video codec. Notionally, yeah, because they 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 always try to do this this dance and every algorithm that they try to put into the standard is being scrutinized and 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 they check if there are any patents around it so they can try and keep this notion of uh, of royalty free um, around the, the codec because definitely the codec is open source um, and royalty free um, I think that is 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 a big question um, so much IP has gone into the development of the different MPEG standards, and we know it has caused issues. Uh, it went pretty smoothly with AVC, with MPEG-LA, that had kind of a single uh, point of contact for licensing uh, all the essential patents. And with HEVC, that hasn't gone very well in the beginning, uh, but still there is a lot of IP there. So the question is, is it even possible to have a truly royalty-free codec that can be competitive in, in uh, compression efficiency and performance with the codec developed by the Standards Committee? I'll give you a two-part answer. Uh, one, uh, because of the landscape of patents in the field of video compression, uh, which I would describe as being, you know, uh, very, very spaghetti-like, um, uh, and patents uh, date back to other patents, um, and uh, they cover most of the the topics uh, and the most of the the tools used in video compression. And by the way, uh, we've looked at the AV1, and AV1 is not that different from uh, all the other standards that we have, H.265 or H.2 or VVC. Um, uh, there are some things that are different. By and large, it resembles the, uh, the existing standards. So can it be that this animal is totally patent-free? Uh, no, it cannot be that it's patent-free. But patent-free is not the same as royalty-free. Um, uh, there's no question that AV1 has many, many patents, probably hundreds of patents uh, that um, uh, reach into it. Uh, the question is whether the people developing and practicing uh, AV1 uh, own all of those patents. That is, of course, a much larger question uh, and in fact, there has been a recent challenge 
uh, to that. Um, uh, a group has even stood up uh, to proclaim that they have essential IP in AV1. The net reaction from the AOM has been to develop a legal defense fund uh, so that uh, they're not going to budge in terms of their royalty-free model. If they do, um, uh, it would kill the whole project because their main thesis is that this is a royalty-free thing, use it, and uh, go ahead. Um, now, the Legal Defense Fund uh, then protects uh, the members of um, uh, that alliance uh, jointly. Now, uh, it's not as if, though, the alliance is going to indemnify you against any possible attack uh, right. on IP. They, they can't do that because nobody can predict, you know, where somebody's IP is. The world is so large, so many patents in that. We're talking not, not even hundreds and thousands, but tens of thousands of patents at least. Uh, so nobody in the world has ever reviewed all of those patents. It's not possible. Um, uh, and uh, the net result is that nobody can know for sure what technology might have been patented by third parties. Uh, but the point is that because uh, such a large number of powerful companies that are also the main users of this technology, you know, people, companies like Google and Apple and Microsoft and, and Netflix and Amazon and Facebook and whatnot, these companies are, are so powerful, and Samsung, by the way, has joined the alliance. Um, these companies are so powerful that, um, you know, it would be hard to challenge them. Uh, and so, in practice, the point is they can project uh, a royalty-free technology because um, uh, it uh, would be hard for anybody uh, to challenge it. Uh, and so that's um, the reality on the ground. Uh, so at the moment, it is succeeding uh, as a royalty-free project. Um, I should also point out that if you want to use this, not join the alliance, but just want to be a user, even just to use it, you already have to um, offer any IP you have in this technology to the uh, alliance. Uh, mm -hmm. So all users around the world, so if tens of thousands and eventually millions of, of uh, you know users around the world, including tens of thousands of companies around the world, start to use this technology, they will all have automatically uh, yielded any IP they have in AV1 to the alliance. Wow, that, that's really fascinating. I mean, first, the distinction you made between royalty-free and patent-free, so... The AOM can keep this technology royalty-free even if it's not patent-free uh, because they don't charge royalties and they can help with the Legal Defense Fund against patent claim and still keep it royalty-free. And, and second is the fact that when you use this technology, you're giving up uh, any IP claims against the creators of the technology, which means that if any, any party who wants uh, to have any IP claims against uh, uh, the uh, AV1 uh, encoder cannot use it in any form or shape. Uh, that's at least my understanding, uh, and I've tried to look at, uh, of course, I'm not a lawyer, um, and uh, you have to take that as just the opinion of a, a video coding expert rather than a lawyer dissecting um, uh, the legalities uh, of this. Um, uh, but be that as it may, uh, my understanding uh, is that um, any user would have to yield their any IP they have uh, in the standard to the alliance. And the net result will be, 
if this technology truly does get widely used, um, more IP than just from the Alliance members will have been folded into uh, into it so that um, eventually uh, it would be hard for anybody to challenge this. Pankaj, what does this mean for the development of so much of, of the technology has been in um, – has been enabled by the financial incentive of small groups of people, you know, or medium-sized groups of people forming together, you know, building a company usually, hiring other experts, and being able to uh, derive some economic benefit from the research and and the work and the, you know, um, the effort that's put in. Um, If all of this sort of consolidates to a handful or a couple hand, handfuls of uh, you know very very large companies. You know, does that? I guess I'm I'm asking from your view. Will will um, video encoding um, uh, technology development and advancements proliferate? Will it sort of stay static because basically all these companies will hire or acquire you know all the experts and you know it's just now everybody works for Google and. Facebook and Netflix and, you know, um, or, or do you think it will ultimately decline? Because that's something that, that comes to mind here is, you know, if the economic incentives sort of go away, well, you know, people aren't going to work for free. So that's, of course, uh, another great question. And uh, one relevant, in fact, uh, to many of us working in video compression right now, including my company, um, uh, and I face this directly, um, Back in the days of uh, MPEG-2, there was a $2.50 per unit license fee uh, for using uh, MPEG-2. That created billions of dollars in licensing. And in fact, the patent pool, uh, MPEG-LA itself made billions of dollars, even though they took only 10% of the proceeds. They mm-hmm. already made billions of dollars, You know, huge amounts of money. Um, with the advent of H.264 AVC, the patent license uh, went not to, from two and a half dollars to twenty-five cents uh, a unit, and now with HEVC, it's a little bit less than that per unit. Of course, the number of units has grown exponentially, but then the big companies don't continue to pay per unit anymore; they just pay a yearly cap. For example, mm-hmm. five million or ten million, which to these big companies is uh, is peanuts. So uh, there's sure. a yearly cap for the big companies that have you know hundreds of millions of units. Um, you know, imagine number of Microsoft Windows that are out there, uh, or the number of um, you know Google Chrome uh, browsers. Uh, and if you have a, a codec embedded in the browser, uh, there are hundreds of millions of them, if not billions of them. Uh, and so they just pay a cap and they're done with it. Um, but even then, there was up till now an incentive for uh, smart engineers to develop exciting new ideas uh, in uh, future video coding. But um, and that has been up the story up till now. But when if it happens that uh, this AOM model with AV1 and then AV2 really becomes the dominant codec and takes over the market, uh, then there will be no incentive for researchers to devote any time and energy. Certainly my company, for example, can't afford to uh, you know, just twiddle the thumbs, create technologies for which there is absolutely no possibility of a royalty stream. Uh, so we, we cannot be in the business of developing video coding when video coding doesn't pay. Uh, so the only thing that makes money are applications. 
for example, a streaming application or some other such thing. Um, and so Netflix and and uh, Google uh, and Amazon will be streaming video and they'll charge you per stream, but not on the codec. Uh, so that uh, that's an interesting thing. And it certainly affects the future development of video. It's clear to me it's a negative impact on the research that we go going in. I can't expect that Google and Amazon and Microsoft uh, are going to continue to devote the same energy to develop future compression technologies in their royalty-free environment that uh, companies have in the open standards development uh, technology uh, environment. Uh, it's hard for me to believe that they will devote that much energy. They'll devote energy, but it will not be uh, the, uh, the same level. For example, in developing a video standard such as uh, HEVC, it took up to 10 years of development by on the order of 500 to 600 experts, well, let's say four to 500 experts from around the world meeting four times a year for 10 years. That is so critical. I, I want you to repeat that again. Well, I mean, uh, so very clearly, we've been putting out a video codec roughly on the schedule of once every 10 years, MPEG-2. Yeah was 1994, AVC was 2003, and also 2004, and then HEVC in 2013. Those were roughly 10 years apart. With VVC, we've accelerated the schedule to put one out in seven years instead seven of 10. Seven years. Mm -hmm. But even then, um, you should realize that we have been working right since uh, HEVC was done. Uh, we've been working all this time to develop VVC. Uh, and so... On the order of 500 experts from around the world have met four times a year at all international locations, um, spending on the order of $100 million per meeting. You know, uh, so billions of dollars have been spent by industry to create these standards, many billions. Uh, and it can't happen, you know, uh, without that. It's hard for me to believe that companies like Microsoft, Google, and whatnot are going to devote billions to develop their next incremental, you know, AV2s and AV3s. Uh, but maybe they will. Um, yeah. uh, it's just that there's no royalty stream coming from the codec itself, only the application. Then the incentive, suppose they start dominating, to create even better technology will not be there. Uh, so there really is a uh, financial issue uh, in this, and that's at play right now. Yeah, I, I, I find it really fascinating. And... Uh, um, of course, Mark and I are also not lawyers, but all this, uh, um, you know, royalty-free versus committee-developed, um, open-source versus a standard, um, those large companies who some people fear, you know, their dominance, not only in video codec development, but in many other areas, um, you know, versus, uh, you know, dozens of companies and hundreds of engineers working for seven or ten years in a codec. Um so, uh, you know, it's really different uh, approaches, um, uh, different methods of development eventually to uh, to approach the exact same problem um, of video compression uh, and, and how this turns out. I mean, uh, we, we cannot uh, forecast for sure, but it will be very interesting, um, especially next year in 2020 when VVC is ratified and uh, at around the same time, EVC is ratified, another codec from uh, the MPEG committee. Um, and then uh, AV1, and once, uh, you know, AV1 starts hitting the market, 
uh, we'll hear all the discussions of AV2. So it's going to be really interesting and, and fascinating to follow. And uh, we, we promise to, uh, to bring you all the updates here on the Video Insiders. Um, so, Pankage, I, I really want to thank you. This has been a fascinating discussion with uh, very interesting insights into the world of uh, codec development and compression um, and, and wavelets and DCT and, uh, and all of those topics uh, and, and the history and the future. So uh, thank you very much for joining us today on the Video Insiders. Uh, it's been my pleasure, uh, Mark and uh, Dror, and uh, I uh, look forward to uh, interacting in the future. I uh, hope uh, this is uh, useful for your audience. If I can give you uh, one parting thought, uh, let me give this. Please um, do. H.264 AVC was developed in 2003 and also 2004. Um, that is, um, you know, some 17 years ago, or 16 years ago, uh, it is close to being now uh, nearly royalty-free itself. And if you look at the market share of video codecs currently being used in the market, uh, for example, even in streaming, uh, AVC dominates that market completely. Uh, even though VP8 and VP9 and VP10 were introduced and now AV1, none of those have any sizable market share AVC currently dominates from 70 to 80 percent of that marketplace right now, and it fully dominates uh, uh, broadcasts where those other codecs yeah. are not even in play. Uh, and so 13, 17, 16, 17 years later, it is now still the dominant codec, even much over HEVC, which, by the way, is also taking an uptick in the last several years. So the standardized codecs developed by ITU and MPEG are not dead. Uh, they may just take a little longer to emerge as dominant uh, forces. That's a great parting thought. Thanks for sharing that. What an engaging episode, Dror. Yeah, yeah, really interesting, really interesting. I, I, I learned so much. I, I got a DCT primer. I mean, <laughs> that in and of itself was uh, amazing. Yeah, yeah. Gentlemen, uh, thank you. Yeah, amazing, Pankaj. Okay, well, good. Well, thanks again for listening to The Video Insiders. And as always, if you would like to come on the show, we would love to have you. Um, just send us an email. Uh, the email address is the video insiders, all one word, at Beamer, that's B-E-A-M-R, dot com. And Dror or myself will follow up with you. And uh, we'd love to hear what you're doing. We're always interested in talking to video experts um, who are involved in really every area of uh, video distribution. So it's not only encoding, it's not only codecs. Um, whatever you're doing, tell us about it. And until next time, uh, what do we say, Dror? Happy, Happy encoding, everyone. <laughs> Happy compressing. That's all right. Okay. Thanks, everyone.